This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports. Keep your kids busy this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Right now, Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, the After Sex After Baby edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Harper, who's seven, and Lyra, who is ten. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, who is six, Sam, four, and Wally, two. Hello, Allison. Hey, welcome back. Thanks. On today's episode, we will talk about The Organic Child with Kate Cairns of Rutgers, who's researching the pressure that parents, and especially mothers, feel about the way their children eat. Then we'll discuss the Marcy's Diner Massacre, the debate between a main diner owner and a customer with a crying kid that has gone totally viral. Plus, triumphs and fails, recommendations, and emails from listeners about Allison and Jessica's amazing and historic sex after baby conversation from last episode. I personally am leading the resistance among all spouses to your absurd year until sex proposal. But first, if you're a fan of the show, please spread the word. For starters, you can like or share our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. But also, you should just tell people you know. Today, I would like you to tell a doctor about our show. Maybe you love your kid's pediatrician, or maybe you think your OBGYN is the bee's knees, like a, a bee who's lying on her back in stirrups, her knees. Or maybe you are just relieved that your dentist is not the dentist who shot that lion. In any case, tell that healthcare professional you so respect about this great podcast you listen to, which discusses medical issues all the time, and in fact really benefits from the doctors and therapists who write to us every week with advice and suggestions. And if you're a fan of Slate Podcasts, please join Slate Plus, our membership program. You'll get extra segments like our bonus Triumph for Fail at the end of this episode. You'll get bonus podcasts like our Amazing History of Slavery in America Academy. And you'll get bonus Slate features. This week on Slate Plus, members who have always wanted to write for Slate can pitch editors their stories, and Slate editors will reply and assign the best ones. Just go to slate.com slash fighting plus to sign up for your free two-week trial and join our 10,000 other members at Slate Plus. You could be number 10,001. It could be you. Finally. Phew, my God. Oh, yes, Allison. <laughs> your hatred of these announcements certainly won't be mirrored by our fans who love listening to them. Slate's Culture Gap Fest is coming to Chicago for the very first time. Join Stephen Metcalf, Julia Turner, and Dana Stevens as they discuss the most compelling cultural happenings of the week with a Q&A to follow. The event will be recorded for an upcoming episode of the podcast. It's all happening Tuesday, September 22nd at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Slate Plus members, of course, get 30% off their ticket purchase, plus back rubs from all three GabFest panelists. Tickets are on sale now. For more information or to buy tickets, go to slate.com slash culture shy. That's <laughs> that's slate.com slash C-U-L-T-U-R-E-C-H-I. It's short for Chicago, Allison. I think they, they call it Chi-Town. Chi-Town, yeah, they call it Chi-Town. But don't type that into your browser because you'll get nothing. But let's go on to Triumphs and Fails, Allison. Whew, okay. Uh, will you allow me both a Triumph and a Fail this week? Uh, if I'll they're short. It. Okay. I'll allow it. Thank you. So the quick triumph is that I have mastered the art of reverse psychology parenting, uh, at least for Wally. 
So oh. for many, many months, every time – you thought it would be for the older kids, right? No, Wally's a genius. For many months, every time I would ask Wally to stand up in the bath so I could wash his tush, he would fight me on it. It was like a, it was just like this constant struggle. I'd say, Wally, Wally, stand up. And he'd say, no, I don't want to stand up. And I'd say, come on, Wally, just stand up. And he'd say, no, I don't want to stand up. But now we go through that whole routine, Wally, please stand up. No, I don't want to stand up. Wally, stand up. No, I don't want to stand up. And then I say, okay, Wally, do not stand up. And he looks at me, and then I say it again, seriously, Wally, do not stand up. And then he says, but I want to stand up. And I say, nope, don't do it. Do not stand up. And he says, but I want to stand up. And then I say, okay, fine, stand up. And then he stands up, and I wash his tush, and he sits back down. Great job. How dirty is Wally's (laughs) ass, like, typically? Is it such a huge problem that you had to gamify his bath? Well, this is another – this is maybe a a topic for another day, but I'm a little (laughs) – we yeah, we bathe every night. No, he's just normal, but I'm obsessive about hygiene. Uh, This is a topic for another time because I literally can't remember the last time my children took showers. (laughs) Uh, There are people like you and there are people like me. That's right. So last week, the fail is last week I talked about my move on our Slate Plus segment, and I think I was fairly positive about it, um, other than about the commute. And this week I'm not feeling positive about it, uh, and I don't want to go into details now because it's enough about me and the move and my mood. But in short, my fail is that I've noticed that I've... (laughs) I've noticed by evaluating myself that I'm constantly evaluating how my kids are feeling about the move and how they're doing on like a daily or hourly basis. And I think it's really bad for them. And it's also really bad for me. And I'm like trying every, you know, constantly asking them questions and trying to get inside their brains to figure out how it's going. And I find it very difficult to stop. But that's my fail. Uh, Yeah, that is tough. Like, I mean, you're seriously just like every like at breakfast, you're like, so how are you feeling about the move? How are I you mean, feeling? I'm not phrasing it like that, but that's generally like all I'm thinking about and trying to find out in my communication with them. Seems like you need a hobby. <sighs> Have you considered uh, not asking your children about the move as a hobby? Yeah, I'm not asking them about the mood. I'm I... asking them like, how's camp or, you know, like... Whatever. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, yes. Part of it is that your sort of overarching concern about it is you feel like it's ruling everything in your life because that is what you're most concerned about. I will say that probably I don't know that your kids are viewing all your neuroses as being the same neurosis. I bet they view them as different individual neuroses of moms. You know, so you can take some heart from that. I'll ask them about that. That's a good That's a good idea. <laughs> All right, go uh, ahead. What, what's yours? I, I also, I have a fail this week. Um, I think it's a really bad one. Uh, like many of my most intense parenting experiences, it is music related. I don't know why this is, but I really, I clearly, this matters to me. So Alia got me a turntable for Christmas. And one really fun part of having it is that Harper really loves it. Lyra it doesn't is interested vaguely but doesn't care that much but Harper loves it. She loves pulling out records. She loves putting them on and flipping them over. She stares at the record sleeves just like I used to do. She um she's fallen in love with a an album of Dolly Parton and Porter Wagoner duets that I bought for 50 cents and plays it all the time, which is great. I love it. I love that she has this connection to this obscure uh obsolete musical device. It's totally fun. Uh separately Harper has always really liked the song Naked Man by Randy Newman, which is a very silly and and good song that she thinks is totally hilarious. Uh, it's on her iPod. She listens to it from time to time. And uh, our producer is, is going to play a, just a little clip from that song so listeners can hear it. So the other day, I found a vinyl copy of the album that that song is on. It's called Good Old Boys by Randy Newman. It was a dollar. So I bought it. Obviously, it's such a good album. I brought it home and I put it away. And probably like less than an hour later, Harper had pulled it out 
and picked it up and said, oh, is this the CD with Naked Man on it? She calls record CDs. I'm working on that. But I was really proud and impressed that she made that connection. Like she had seen his name and she just saw it again and she thought, oh, this must be the guy. So we listened to Side B, which includes Naked Man and it has Louisiana 1927, which is a beautiful song and it was totally great. So anyway, I was at work late last night and Alia all of a sudden texted me, Harper just played Side A of that Randy Newman album and so we just listened to Rednecks together. Rednecks is a pretty harshly satirical song about Southern men that I I realized right when Alia sent me that text is chock full of the N-word. It uses the N-word like made probably a hundred times. So let's listen to that. If you are uh, not a person who wants to hear Randy Newman say the N-word, you should skip forward about 15 seconds. Now, in general, uh, I don't censor the music that I listen to around the kids very much, but I do try and steer clear of that word because it's so much more awful than pretty much any other word that might appear in a song that they might overhear. We haven't had a really serious talk about it with either of our kids because, thankfully, they have not encountered it really in their lives. And according to Alia, it didn't really register with Harper this time. But now I have this situation. Here's my situation, Allison. If Harper plays this record as much as she plays, like, Dolly and Porter, for example, Randy Newman is going to be dropping N-bombs really loud in my living room a million times a day, and Harper will be singing along. So what do I do? What do I do? How do I remedy this fail? I don't necessarily think this is a fail. I mean, isn't this partly, this is like what, this is the reason we let our kids read books that maybe have, you know, whatever material that we uh, wouldn't entirely be comfortable with or watch movies. I mean, so sh- they she was introduced to something that she doesn't know about, and you talk, you're going to now talk to her about it. Am and, I? Am I, I going to talk to her about yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> what's so horrible about you talk to her about it and say, maybe you say, like, I don't think, like, and I don't actually want this song played over and over again in our house, and that's it. Like, you explain why. Man. I mean, it's hard, though. It's like, it's not like, I mean, I this mean, is your opening. I know this is my opening, but it's such a terrible opening. It's like this is it's it's not easy, I think, to explain away that word in any song. But I think it is especially hard in this one. Like the idea of sitting Harper down and being like, well, Harper, this white man saying that word because it's slightly clumsy satire that's basically on the right side of history, but it's definitely beholden to its era and it would never be tolerated or uh, attempted to. I don't think you have to go that far. I sure. Just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that would be crazy. Uh, you don't have to like defend or you don't have, take Randy Newman out of the equation. <laughs> just like explain what the word means to her and a little bit of the history and as an explanation of why you don't want the song played. Uh, she doesn't need yeah. to understand like satire. That's a reasonable. That's a reasonable response. On the other hand, I'm considering just totally scratching out that one song so it's unplayable on the record. Is that an option? Uh, it's an option. It's a wimpy option. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks. Thanks for giving me that out. Let's move on to a, a word from our sponsor, Allison. Okay. Our first advertiser this week is Little Passports. Keep your kids busy and learning this summer with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pal Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail. The first one comes in a cool blue suitcase. And each one highlights a new global destination like Kenya or Spain or England or Israel. Follow the journey on the wall-sized world map and enjoy learning through letters from Sam and Sophia, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Your kids will learn how to say hello in different languages, what foods are popular around the globe, and what animals are native to different countries. Little Passports is a great way to get your kids excited for future travel or to teach them about the basics of different countries you may not actually be able to take them to anytime soon. Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D-4-0. So learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad and use the promo code MOMANDDAD40. 
I would just like to note that the Egypt little passports that arrived the other week for Harper had this amazing embedded sphinx in like a little chunk of granite or something and little archaeological tools that she could use to chip away at it. And she did it for like three hours. It was the greatest activity she's ever gotten in the mail. That is the ad. I I didn't need to say any of those other words. (laughs) You just said she did something for three hours. Yep. Yep. It was great. (laughs) Okay. Let's move on. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Do you have an organic child? For many of us, the battle to keep our children's diet clean and pure and ethical starts the instant the pregnancy begins, as expecting moms modify their diet and think much more about what they're putting in their bodies. And then, geez, once the baby is born, all bets are off. Are you nursing or using formula? Is it organic formula? You're making your own baby food, right? You give your kids Cascadian Farms Purely O's, not Cheerios, right? Does your teenager know where his cheeseburger comes from? So, who worries about this in your family? Why does it always seem to fall to mom in many families? What happens in families that don't have the resources to buy organic and local for every meal? Why are they poisoning their children? We're joined today by Dr. Kate Cairns as a professor of childhood studies at Rutgers who specializes in the study of modern organic parenting. And she's joining us by phone today to talk about her research and her upcoming book, Food and Femininity. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Kate, straight talk. I fed my kids regular milk this morning, not organic. Are they doomed? <laughs> I definitely don't think so. Oh, phew. Thank the, the God. Question is, the question is, how do you and, and potentially uh, their mother feel about it, I think? Right. Well, so that's the question that you are raising in this research, um, where you talk to big focus groups uh, of people about their food buying habits and about the, the pressure and desire they feel to to buy organic and specific you talk to a lot of different parents moms and dads in those conversations what did you hear about where the pressure to raise organic kids comes from well yeah i mean let me first of all just give a little bit of credit to my co-authors so this research uh the book is with jose johnston who's at the university of toronto and the our initial article on this sort of cultural ideal of the organic child was also written with nora mckendrick who's at rutgers so i just want to make sure i give them credit And so we look at the idea of the organic child as a kind of broad cultural ideal that um, presents the notion of a pure child that's shielded from harmful impurities of the industrial food system. And we found that in talking to uh, men and women in focus groups and, and women in individual interviews, this narrative kind of kept popping up as a goal that they were sort of striving toward. So in terms of where are they getting this pressure, uh, your question, I think the short answer, unfortunately, is everywhere. So um, (laughs) from the parenting magazines that they're reading, from advertisements that they encounter, uh, product lines like Organic Kids, other kinds of um, organic baby food products, um, um, guides put out by things like the Environmental Working Group, which has their Dirty Dozen sort of guide of the Uh, fruits and vegetables that are most heavily laden with pesticides, but also in kind of feeling the potentially judgmental glances or helpful suggestions of their friends and family members who were uh, evaluating their own food purchases. Or at least for the perspective of many of the mothers that we talked to, they felt like they were often being kind of scrutinized and evaluated by by others around them. You talk a lot in your research about how... You know, so much of parenting, especially very early parenting, is the sense of everything being out of your control. You have no idea how the things that you're doing are affecting or not affecting your child. Mm-hmm. And so people really seize on what their kids eat as a thing that they can affirmatively control. And if you can just, like, be perfect at that, you maybe everything else will be okay. Absolutely. And I think that that is especially a kind of heightened concern in our current environment where um, environmental risks to children's health are seen as a real sort of danger. So, for instance, one woman who I spoke with said, you know, I can't control the air that my child breathes, I can't control the water that she drinks, but I can control what's in the food that she eats. And so, in this way, while I'm particularly concerned about the kind of stress and work and and cost that these pressures place on mothers, for this mother, this actually provided a sense of sort of control and empowerment within a context of seemingly pervasive risk. That mom sounds like she needs to invest in some kind of air purifying system so she can control the (laughs) air her child breathes. 
If only Sorry, go ahead, that. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering if you got any sense of how um, much research these moms are doing. Like, mm. are they just assuming the Cascadia Farm brand has is better for their kids than the who makes Cheerios? Sorry. Procter and Gamble, Mills. General Mills, whatever. I mean, are they? Are, is it just? Is it sort of like the label is prettier? It says organic on it, or does it go deeper than that? Are they? Are they actually feeding their kids food that they that is that they're checking out as being better for them? Well, the thing is, I mean, I think that's an important part of the work that goes into this kind of project of raising an organic child is all of that research. So a lot of the women that we spoke with were doing extensive research. So they were looking at products online. They were visiting multiple vendors, uh, reading labels, really scrutinizing them uh, in order to inform their decisions. But the stress that comes along with that is not only all the work of doing the research, but the fact that research often yields contradictory information, right? So you might read one parenting article that says, you know, yes, definitely, it always has to be organic, and alongside another one that says, you know, is emphasizing the benefits of local produce, even if it's not certified organic. Or uh, someone else tells you that actually they've heard there are fishy practices about this company that you've placed your faith in. So the research is, is a central component, but that doesn't necessarily always um, um, calm the anxieties that are associated with these concerns. Right. It seems like the more you research it, the more reasons you can find to be anxious or nervous about it, which is why one of the reasons I think that so many of these women in your study talk about how their partners are essentially like rolling their eyes at all the mm-hmm. at all this all the work they're doing to like try and ensure the purity of their child. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So some were rolling their eyes. I mean, I want to be clear that in in many of the cases uh, women that we spoke with said that their their partners or husbands were very supportive, but that they kind of took on a sort of supportive helper role. So, for instance, women would do all of this research um, in order to inform family food decisions, and they'd make a very, very detailed shopping list that included, you know, not only the stores to go to and and the things that they needed, but specific brands. And then perhaps a man would go out and do the shopping. So there was sort of the idea that in many families, um, husbands, fathers may have been supportive um, and seen these as as potentially important issues, um, but weren't engaging in this kind of extensive labor that was required. But then in some families, as you mentioned, Dan, there was this kind of eye rolling. And that does bring up another important part of uh, the kind of stress and work that goes into raising an organic child, which is managing potentially judgmental um, views from others. So not only judgment if you aren't being vigilant enough, but also the potential judgment that you are being overly anxious or a quote-unquote helicopter. Mom. Exactly, that you're yeah. a crazy mom. And it was really striking. You know, we sort of started to notice this pattern early on, and then it became quite apparent again and again that women would say things like, well, you know, I do always try to choose organic, but I'm not crazy about it. Or, you know, <laughs> I, you know we'll, we'll prioritize organic when we can, but, you know, when they're at their grandma's, they just eat conventional produce, and, and that's okay. So there was always the kind of need to manage a, a moderate, informed, but not excessive sort of approach to feeding children. Did you talk to any parents who aren't striving for this? I'm curious, like, what parents who don't think about this at all are doing right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really important question and I think it's even important to note that many of the parents who we talked to who who were concerned about these issues and engaged in these practices were also reflecting critically upon it. So, you know, one um woman talked about reading um, a pregnancy sort of advice book when she was pregnant that said, every bite you eat, you should be thinking about how it affects your baby. And she'd been having all kinds of trouble with nausea during pregnancy. And she was like, you know, I think that book should be banned. Like, I just needed to eat food and not stress about it. Um, And others laughed at how they had really high expectations for the kinds of parents that they could be before having kids. And then after having kids, some of that sort of went out the window. And so for some, they were able to take a sort of more relaxed approach and be and to, you know, being aware of of some of these pressures, but um, not penalize themselves when they couldn't live up to it. And then also there was 
important critique sometimes put forward by folks who just absolutely couldn't afford to participate in this kind of parenting. You know, it's, it's very resource and time um, extensive to do all of this research and buy expensive organic food. And for some low-income mothers, this generated feelings of stress and guilt. But for others, this generated a sense of frustration as they were aware that this kind of um, gold standard was being held up for a mode of parenting that they that they just didn't have access to. Right. The idea that the most healthy possible child is a luxury product that you can't afford. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Kate, do you have kids? I do not have kids, but I I want to say that the both Nora and Jose, who I did this research with, do, and um, so they can identify with some of these struggles in their own lives. Yeah. And the reason I ask is just, I'm just curious what, I mean, I guess I'll just ask Dan, what what do you guys do in your house? Like, are you Vans uh, waffle people or Eggo waffle people? We are Eggo waffle people. We I think that when Lyra was little, we thought about it a lot and then almost immediately became overwhelmed with the notion of, uh, with the notion that we would never be able to, like, do it right. That we would mm. never have the time, energy, and money to do it right. And also... I think in a way we sort of set ourselves up as the parents who don't care about this as much as other people because we, I think in a way we sort of embraced our failure, right? We knew we would never be able to get our kids to eat great, as great as in our secret heart of hearts we would want them to. And so therefore we were happier to be like the cool parents who just who, – who aren't crazy about it at all. Uh, and then we can – at least – at the very least we can – consider our failure more as a success in opposition to those crazy parents down the hall. That's really interesting, uh, given how this can be an important kind of practice for, for many people's identities as good mothers. And so you're saying that for your identities, this was a, kind of a badge of honor to say, you know what, we're not buying into all of this. So, so that provided a way of sort of not stressing about it. It's really interesting. What about you, Allison? Uh, we're an ego house, but I'd say we sort of are a divided house. Um, I definitely care more than John does, and it's definitely about, like, there's a divide between... It, it's about being observed in many regards. Mm. Like, I notice, like, when my sister comes to visit, I, I, like, am very conscious that I'm feeding my kids ego waffles. Or, not that she cares. She, I'm sure she doesn't care. Um, or she cares. like Or when we sit, send our, you know, we pack our kids lunch and a thousand snacks now. Now they need morning and afternoon snacks. Uh, and John actually recently said to me, like, why are we going to all this trouble? Why don't we just get Lunchables? And I was kind of like, what? Like, we can't get Lunchables. Partly partly because I think, like, Lunchables are bad for them. And then also partly because I think we are pushovers. And so in our own house, when they, like, ask for crap, they generally get it. And so I feel like when I send them out into the world, at least I should send them out into the world with healthy food. But, um, yeah, I think I, I kind of – I go I – go, back and forth. I'm not insane about it, but I'm probably not as laid back as I could be. Here's my question then for Allison and for Kate. Allison, do you view sort of John's differing view on this, his sense that it isn't as important as you think it is, as a failure on his part or as a kind of failure on yours? Do you end up thinking, oh God, I care about this too much? Or do you legitimately think, what the hell is wrong with John that he doesn't care more about this? And Kate, what did you see in these families that where there was this real differing of opinion, my my hunch is that most moms just find a way to feel guilty about both things. But maybe that's wrong. I mean, I don't feel guilt. I just kind of feel like I've taken the responsibility on for this thing. And if I want to keep it going, then I'm the one who has to like go buy the food that I want to pack for them. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important also to contextualize this within broader patterns where women still do the vast majority of food shopping and cooking within heterosexual families. So there's also just a fact of who is usually in the position of being primarily responsible and therefore maybe feels, takes on more um, of the weight of this. But then also I think really the stakes are higher um, for how you're being evaluated by others. You know, Allison, it doesn't surprise me that, that you're, you're thinking more about how Lunchables would be perceived <laughs> than your husband is because uh, that's more seen as a reflection of mothering practices than fathering practices. Um, but I, I do think, Dan, that we did find some of what you're saying about feeling, <laughs> managing to feel guilty no matter what um, because 
for lots of folks that we talked to who were actually kind of really thoughtful and critical about this, I don't want to give the, the impression that women were just sort of being duped into these practices. It wasn't that at all. In fact, they were sort of critical um, of, of these unrealistic demands. They were critical of the elitism that can kind of come with this idea that feeding your kid operates as a status symbol. Um, but at the same time, there's this kind of emotional component of feeling genuinely concerned about your kid's well-being. And so then, and, and feeling like at, at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to sort of uh, detach from all of these messages that are telling you that this is what you have to do as an individual in order to protect your kid. All right. Well, this is super interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen, for coming on. Um, the book is coming out this fall. It is called Food and Femininity. It's by Kate Cairns and Jose Johnson. You can pre-order it from Amazon. Uh, we'll have a link on our show page and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Thanks so much, Dr. Cairns. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, do you feel pressure from other parents to eat better? Do you secretly think that your wives are crazy or that your husbands are monsters? Email us and tell us all about it at momandad at slate.com. All right, we'll be back in a moment to talk about sex. Hi, I'm Sam Zabel, host of Adulthood Made Easy, a weekly podcast from Real Simple. Every week, I'm bringing in the experts to help me figure out the real world, which I feel like I've just been thrown into after graduation. So if you're feeling a little bit lost in your 20s, like me, then come listen to Adulthood Made Easy, which you can find and subscribe to on iTunes. All right. This week, we are bypassing our listener call to dive into our email box. But remember, if you have a parenting question you want us to answer, give us a call, 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE, which is what John was by not having sex with you the whole time you were pregnant, Allison. Speaking of which, the email started flooding in as soon as our last episode posted two weeks ago. What on earth did you crazy broads talk about? Oh, yes, sex. Sex after baby. I have some thoughts as a dude, but first, I really want to hear what our listeners had to say. We heard from a lot of listeners. Also, I had to endure phone calls from both of my parents telling me that we didn't skip it. We didn't skip the segment, <laughs> even though you told us to. And also, all the hometown fans like Kim Tomashaw's dad, Richard, they all listened to. So that was, <laughs> that was great to know. Uh, okay, so we asked you guys to write in with your own experiences, uh, and you really did. We got a lot of fantastic emails. It was hard for me to pick. So uh, bear with me while I read some great ones. This first one is from Anna, whose email is very representative of the vast majority of the emails we got, summed up by another listener as sex doesn't always have to equal penis and vagina. Uh, so Anna writes, regarding your sex after baby segment, I was wondering why the whole focus was on vaginal sex. What about mutual masturbation, oral, etc.? Oh, my God. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> sorry, Richard Tomasha. Uh, don't, don't worry, Myra. <laughs> Allison never does any of that stuff. I find that those already are important parts of my sex life, and it seems like they could be great middle ground if it's still too early for penetration. More generally, I think it's important for society to not put so much emphasis on vaginal sex in defining a healthy sexual relationship with your partner. Uh, and Anna, you're right. We heard from a lot of people. We had, like, clearly we had a very, like, uh, although we thought we were being, like, fun-loving broads yakking about our boobs, it was a very um, traditional conversation about sex, um, we, we realized later. Uh, we, Jessica and I also really wanted to hear from men about what sex after baby or no sex after baby was like for them. And one dad, Brian, wrote in um, with a really detailed and interesting uh, note. So Brian says, our son was over 10 pounds when he was born. Prior to his birth, his size made sex almost impossible in the month leading up to his birth. My wife's pregnancy was a particularly intimate and loving period in our relationship, and we had sex more frequently than usual. But once our son was big enough to be in the way, we had to find different ways to enjoy sex without vaginal intercourse. We expanded what counted as sex to help us fulfill our drives during this time. Mutual masturbation, making out, and even cuddling got us through. It takes a little adjusting to be fulfilled by something like making out. The key is not looking at it as a consolation prize, but a sexual expression and fully enjoy the contact. My son was delivered via C-section thanks to a previous abdominal incision. My wife's recovery was fairly easy. Though sex wouldn't be painful, my wife wasn't emotionally ready for it. We maintained our sexual connection through the low-stakes sex acts we enjoyed prior to our son's birth. If I wanted to ejaculate after she was done, I would often do that in private. My bet is, at the time, that was yet another bodily fluid she didn't want to have to deal with. This type of sex, I believe, made the day we had vaginal sex arrive sooner. 
Well, I did say what we were doing was not a concession. I do think in our early days of parenthood, it was a compromise that gave my wife the space she needed to ramp up to full sexual activity while giving me the fulfillment I needed. Uh, so that was a great note. But here's a less shit held together email from Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> who just had her third baby and sums up the gender dynamic really nicely by saying, it all boils down to this for me, and I'm guessing for lots of other people. He wants sex, and I want to want it, but I don't, and I'm having so much trouble feeling sexual again. Uh, She says, I like the discussion about how six weeks isn't a magic marker and how there's so little acknowledgement of the physical trauma to a woman's vagina and pelvic region and how long it takes to get back in the swing of things. It's such a sensitive subject for the husband's male partners. They feel rejected, get defensive, and women don't really know how to explain what we're feeling. I agree that sex is important to a relationship, yet my desire for sex is like negative 10,000. Uh, And that note reminds me, actually, that we didn't hear from any gay or lesbian parents, I don't think. And I'd really still like to. What is sex like after adoption or after your lesbian partner just went through labor? Please do write in um, with your experiences. One more. I know, Dan, you said only three, and I'm ignoring you because I want to end it on a high note from Amber, who says... I feel like I'm jinxing my four-month pregnant self for my second go-around, but I have to shout out that it isn't always that bad for fearful, sex-loving moms to be. I pushed for hours and got a couple of stitches, but otherwise not a traumatic birth. I was emotionally ready to go. Okay, I was horny after six weeks, but I was scared. When I got my six-week all clear, I was willing to try but expected to need to stop things or not enjoy it. But it was fun. There were some ouches and adjustments, but otherwise it felt great, and the benefit of being that close to my husband again was off the charts worth it. So don't be scared. Go slow, but do try. When you have a tiny, demanding person screaming at you all day, it does a world of good to let off a bit of steam together. Damn. That's a great email to yeah. have on. Yeah. But now I want to know from you, did you feel, as uh, Catherine noted, that she thought many male partners feel rejected? Did you get defensive? Uh, I, I hope I didn't. Uh, maybe that's more for Alia to say than me. Um, I think that we had it relatively easy, uh, both times, both after both babies were born, um, in that we, I don't, I don't think that we managed to have sex right at six weeks, but I do think that we started messing around at six weeks and that we managed within a month or so after that to like, give it a shot. And it wasn't a plus sex. Uh, I would, it was probably like C minus sex, but it was sex. And as Jessica mentioned last time, it, you know, the first time was not that great. And the second time was a little better. And the third time was a little better than that. And eventually we got back to where we were before. And I, I'm sure it felt different for her. It definitely felt different for me, Allison. I know you were worried about whether that was the case or not. And I mean, it was the case for me, but that it didn't mean that. John was lying. He was definitely lying. Yeah. Um, and but it, but it didn't mean it was worse. It just meant that it was different. Um, and the and as the letter writer wrote, like the benefits to that kind of intimacy and closeness during an unbelievably otherwise traumatic time in our lives of early babyhood was incredibly crucial. I thought you know I felt like that was a thing that we had together that felt that felt intimate and close and important to our lives and it was a reminder that we existed as creatures other than a milk pump and a diaper changer which is what we felt like all the time otherwise uh and that meant a lot to us and so and so i would like to push back against your and jessica's sort of joking and sort of not joking uh proposal for uh the one year rule uh, one year is too long. One year is too long under any but the most extreme of circumstances. I, that I mean, I think so. I, you know, I don't think a guy is owed sex or that a woman is owed sex in a relationship. But I do think that a relationship between two adults with sex drives requires tending and maintenance and closeness. And sometimes this means that a person just needs to go ahead and do it with the knowledge that maybe this time it will be better for the other person than it is for you. But in the great karmic sweep of life eventually uh it'll all equal out what do you think guys is dan horrible i'm probably horrible (laughs) but i but i also believe it goes both ways so for instance john if you're listening and if god forbid gets pregnant again oh my god what ah you have got to have sex with her. You have to do it. She is hornier than usual, and you need to <laughs> right, do something about on. that. Let's move on. And and 
I think that in general, people just need to get on the horse. You need to get on the horse <laughs> and ride it out. Get on the horse episode. Yes. <laughs> get on the horse. Get on the horse get after back baby. Get on the horse. Yeah. I know it's easy for me to say. But yeah, I would like I, I, I would like important. one listener, Alia, please write in. Just call me. <laughs> Alia, call me. Okay, let's move on. If you have not heard about the Marcy's Diner controversy by now, you've heard about another one just like it. Parents take their two-year-old to a Portland, Maine diner for breakfast. They order pancakes. The pancakes take a long time to arrive. Their two-year-old starts crying and making a fuss. The diner's owner is irked at all the crying, and after the pancakes finally arrive but the kid doesn't stop crying, the owner slams her hands on the table and screams at the child to shut the hell up, which works. Later, the parents leave a pissed-off message on the diner's Facebook page, and then the diner's owner returns Volley with her own even more pissed-off message. All hell breaks loose on the Internet. Everyone has something to say about these parents or this diner owner, maybe even you. So, Dan, before we have the mature conversation about what this all means and about parenting in public more broadly and about raising kids in the age of the viral parenting hate read, whose side are you on? Uh, I'm on the parent's side, even though uh, I read the mom's uh, explanation of the whole thing on The Washington Post, which made me feel like I bet they really were in the like the top 5% of pain-in-the-ass family customers for this diner. I think... The, the word that matters most in this entire situation is diner. If you run a diner and you cannot deal with a crying child being in your restaurant and you cannot generate pancakes in less than 40 minutes, why are you a diner? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the specifics of this case, because I'm not always with the parents in these in these stories, um, but the specifics in this case are like, there's this very odd, there's like a lot of anger from the diner owner over the fact that the parents ordered three pancakes for their two-year-old. Like, she was really miffed about that, as though that yeah. were like some kind of explanation for why she was angry at these parents to begin with. Um, and I guess that's why the pancakes took so long to arrive. The owner, like, I get it. I sometimes slam my hands down on the table and tell my kids to be quiet, too. Uh, but, yeah, that was – she was wrong and – Allison, when you do that, will you ever forget the look of fear on your baby's face? <laughs> I feel bad afterwards. Whenever I do things like that and lose my cool, I have, like, a lot of guilt about it later. Um, I do think, you know, there's this whole – the parents, could they have taken the kid outside? They said it was it was raining, so they decided to stay in. I definitely would have like gotten the hell out of there. Like it's it's so much worse. I feel like to be in a in that position, like with your crying kid inside a restaurant when you feel like you're bothering people. I'm surprised that they were not more conscious of that. Uh, but yeah, that that diner owner should not have yelled at that. Yeah, I feel like in my my rule for that level of restaurant for a diner level of restaurant. Obviously, it changes depending on your setting, but. My rule for our family has always been, barring like full-on screaming, if your kid is just like fussing or being mildly annoying, you just do your best, you eat fast, you keep your kid in the chair, and then you tip like crazy when you leave. Like, right. That's that's how you make it up to everyone. And you always pack snacks. Right. Right. Yeah. So you should definitely pack Cheerios. Sure. But, you know, it's not – it shouldn't be a fireable offense as a parent to not pack Cheerios. Right. But I also will say that – I get the she expressed her anger in the wrong way, but I get it. Like I get it why that was why she was, you know, she broke from having a screaming child in her restaurant for 40 minutes. I get it, but yes, I get it. And who knows how many screaming children have traipsed through that diner uh, on a daily basis. Reading the comments on the post article, it's clear that there's a whole separate level on this of uh tourist resentment, right? The the family was from New York City. The diner is in Maine. Locals f locals from the town who are commenting on this post are universal in their disdain for the New York right. schmancy here parents with your who came. Right. sophisticated baby. Right. My, our pancakes aren't good enough for your two-year-old. Uh, so there's a whole another layer that like that is irrelevant to this particular discussion. But I will say that you know, the way that this erupted on social media and the way that things like this now seem to always erupt on social media does suggest to me that um, that people have basically lost the ability 
it seems like people have lost the ability to maintain any kind of sense of perspective on either side, whether it is the diner owner who couldn't stop screaming or the mom who responded to all this with a, with a, like a incredibly like, uh, public and, and scathing Facebook post on this restaurant's wall. Like those are essentially in the, in 2015 equivalent actions, like the damage you maybe do to that baby by shouting at her. No, is you don't about- do it. Wait, let's hold on. Okay. Yes. You don't do any damage to the baby by shouting yes, at that, her. Okay, that yes, baby's that's fine. It's like in the slap. I know it's, everything comes back to the slap for me, <laughs> but like the kid was fine. <laughs> uh, but yes. Okay. The damage you do to the parents emotions by yelling at their baby yeah. in front of them is probably not as much in the end as the damage you do to that business by posting this thing about how horrible they are on their Facebook wall. And both of those are responses that I think are way out of proportion to the original crime. And then the responses that pile on top of them from one million people all over the world are also all completely out of proportion. Um, Rebecca Schumann wrote a great piece, a very fun piece about this for Slate, um, about how she is now afraid to take her monster of a six-month-old anywhere because she assumes she will just end up on someone's Facebook wall as this week's terrible parent. But her point at the end of the piece is well taken. Like, there's no reason that that diner owner couldn't have just talked to the parents. And there's no reason that the parents couldn't have just called the diner owner on the phone. Like, nothing about this had to be as bad as, bad as it had to be. And the fact that it became as bad as it had to be speaks, as many things do, to the way that everyone uh, on either side of the parent and non-parent divide feels constantly under siege in 2015 by what they believe to be the other side. Yeah. Do you feel ever afraid of parenting in public? Not necessarily because you're you're scared you're going to be captured in a viral video, but like for blowback? No, I've, my kids are old enough that they're almost, they're basically fine in public. Like people might think they're annoying or that they talk too much, but they're, they don't have meltdowns in public really anymore. When I, when they were babies, uh, I, I worried about it a lot at first, but soon became so desperate to just ever get out of the house that I was willing to put up with almost any kind of disdain uh, from anyone in any restaurant just so it wouldn't just be like me and the kids cooped up in our tiny New York apartment. You know, I just wanted to get out and and be out in the world. And I tried to be careful about where we went. Um, and it often occasionally would lead to horrible scenes where like the time that I just sprinted out of an Italian restaurant in Greenwich Village with a vomiting child, just like spraying puke everywhere. Uh, and eventually I had to walk through the village shirtless because I had used my shirt to mop up the puke, pushing Lyra, baby Lyra in a stroller in front of me. Like shit like that happened all the time. But that's what tipping's for. Do you think at a restaurant, at a different kind of restaurant, the owner should be allowed to go up to the customer and say nicely, not slam on the table, but like, I'd like you to leave. You're causing a scene. Yes, I think so. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, look, you are the owner. If you have the kind of restaurant where a baby that's causing a scene really is screening it up for other diners, you have a responsibility and a right to do that. I mean... It'll end badly, right? It'll definitely end badly, but you have the right to do it. <laughs> I think I'd be mortified. I don't think I, I don't think my reaction would be like "fuck you." I think I'd be like mortified that my you know you child. would have been you would have been out the door ten minutes before. That. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wrap it up. Okay, we'll just wrap this up by saying that <laughs> this is a little meta, but ever since doing this podcast, I am more aware of parenting in public because I'm scared of being caught out by you people. Doing bad things or having you, bad Allison, children. What Allison's trying to say is she got recognized in Jersey uh, <laughs> that, twice. That did happen. Twice. I already mentioned that in the last podcast. We don't need to mention it again. Uh, <laughs> but I was at a birthday party and I felt like I felt maybe like this guy was like listened to the podcast and was watching me and it was horrible. Uh, anyway, so yeah. All our friends on Williamsburg Boulevard, just whenever I do anything wrong, immediately say, was that your fail? So... It works out okay. All right. Let's move on to recommendations. All right. I would like to recommend an app, uh, an iOS app that I have really been enjoying playing the last couple of weeks, but that I also think creative and smart tweens and teens would also love. It is called 80 Days. 
It is a uh, iPhone and iPad adaptation of Around the World in 80 Days, the Jules Verne novel. Uh, in this game, you play the role of Passepartout, the valet, and you must help your master, Phileas Fogg, win his wager to travel around the world in 80 days by uh, horse-drawn carriage or dog sled or balloon or zeppelin or whatever. Um, you, Passepartout, are in charge of setting the course and choosing the mode of transportation and picking what cities around the world you're going to go to and managing the funds and dealing with the, all the different crazy obstacles that come up in this sort of Victorian steampunk world. It is really super fun. I also think that it would be great for kids in general who have an interest in adventure and in the world uh, who I think would really get into the the fanciful travel of this game. It's super fun. Um, it is called 80 Days, and it is available in the iTunes store. We'll link to it from our show page and our Facebook page. What that about sounds you, great. Uh, my recommendation this week is for listeners who liked our segment on Sex After Baby to go check out more Sex After Baby, uh, the four-part sex and parenthood series that another great parenting podcast, The Longest Shortest Time, did earlier this year. Uh, and they also hosted a great Ask a Pelvic Floor PT Anything Google Hangout, which is archived. Whoa, great yeah. idea. Yes. So we'll link to all of this on our show page. You should check it out. Also, real quick, can I ask for a recommendation? Sure. If I'll it, allow it. If anyone knows of a great raccoon-proof garbage can, <laughs> please email me. Says they, the, the Jersey raccoons have, like, targeted our house. They're like, these people are new. Yep. Yeah, it's bad. Yep. Uh, the Federation, the New Jersey Teamster Raccoons <laughs> totally. 103 are off. going after you. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Uh, all right. Well, that's our show. Um, please email us uh, if you have responses to what we've talked about this episode. If you have questions, if you have suggestions for topics, uh, today's topic on organic parenting came up because of a suggestion from a listener. Um, we would love to hear from you. Email us at slate.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. If you have a question you want us to answer on the air, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 424-255-7833. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. To see our full roster of podcasts, go to itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to Kate Cairns for joining us this week. Thanks to our producer, Bailey Constas, and to Henry Malofsky, who recorded us this week. Thanks to our intern, Jesse Chasen Tabor. Thanks to Joel Meyer, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and to brand new New York resident, Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.